morning, church. Um, It's only been two weeks. I didn't think I have to reintroduce myself, but I wasn't supposed to be gone last week. I I got sick. I got sick on Friday and thought that I was going to make it and had to text Pastor Walt early. I knew he'd be up, but I had to text him early, let him know I wasn't going to be here. And I crashed, and then the Lord woke me, I believe, the Lord woke me at 5 till 10 just to pray for you, and then I crashed again. So woke up again about 2 o'clock, so I guess I really was sick. But uh, I missed you. I truly do. It's as simple as that. I miss not being with you. Uh, this is about as comfortable as, uh, as I get, and I, uh, I've been moved to thank you for being my family, and uh, I know I speak for my lovely wife, too. Uh, we're praying for, I, I know that we're uh, a little down today. I, actually, our our estrogen level has just dropped a little bit in the room. <clears throat> Everyone here, women of faith. I thought Pastor Walt was going to crash women of faith this year. He said, you know, men of, you know, woe, men of faith, you know, so that, Weren't you going to? You were going to crash women of faith, remember? You might need some allies. When I first started in ministry, back when, uh, actually, Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus and then sent me to Miranda. That's how it feels, how how long I've been doing this. And actually, a decade before that, he sent Pastor Walt to paradise. So we've been, you know, we've been in it. He's been in it even longer. Sometimes it feels that when Paul and I started, but um, at a small church, and we used to get our music, <clears throat> our worship music, out of this ancient oracle, <laughs> this mysterious book. Yeah, and. We had one pianist, one, count them, one, okay? We had a, a, a musician, an elder who was a musician, but he, he only was on the platform once a month. So all three weeks, she would have to play. She, she would lead us. And you have to understand that by the time I, I had got to this church, I'd only been in the church for, it wasn't even seven years. So this isn't easy to navigate you do need, you know, it's it's not easy to navigate with its ancient codes and, uh, you know, and, and you know, the, the these and the thous and the wilts and, uh, <clears throat> but, uh, so, and she wouldn't, and she wouldn't navigate it for me. She'd always, I'd always say, Molly, pick the songs out, pick the songs out. She's the sweetest lady. And she'd say, Pastor, you know your sermon. You pick the songs, okay? You pick the songs. Well, I, okay. See, because up until then, all the churches that I had been members of, there would be this divinely ordained sage who would guide us through this mysterious book. The song leader would stand up and say, now turn in your hymnals to number. That's all I knew about it. So she's the sweetest lady, though, sweetest lady. And even now, and, and uh, there was a couple of times that she actually picked the songs because she didn't realize how much of my sermon preparation was done on Friday night. <clears throat> and she wanted to practice for some reason. <laughs> well, one time, one time, 
after you know getting a little used to it and navigating through this mysterious book, she mentioned an even more mysterious oracle called the Old Hymnal. And she spoke of it with reverence in her voice. <clears throat> and she said there was a hymn in there that, that we used to do traditionally at funerals, and it was by Fanny Crosby, and it was called Someday the Silver Cord Will Break. Does anybody know that hymn? Well, apparently it's not in this one. It didn't make it in this one, but it is in that mysterious book of Apocrypha called the Old Hymnal. (laughs) Someday the silver cord will break, and I no more as now shall sing. But oh, the joy when I shall wake within the presence of the king, and I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. And I shall see him face to face, tell the story saved by grace. Now, I understood everything in that hymn except the title in the first line. Someday the silver cord will break. I later found out it's found in the book of what? The book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, it's found in the very last chapter, which we will get to today. When we began this series We encountered some resistance, and I couldn't help but notice that the resistance that we encountered were members who had been around for a while, some of our most experienced, some of our most spiced members, if you will. Because what I I gather is that Ecclesiastes was traditionally used where? Traditionally used at funerals. So when Pastor Walt began the series, he pointed out that it's not a book that you really would buy. Remember in the very first one, he said that if you were to take chapter one, just the first like six verses of chapter one and hand it out to the New York Times book review as a synopsis of the book, they wouldn't buy it. It's too depressing. Well, I found out that Ecclesiastes is even too depressing for Adventist funerals because I never even heard it there even. And after studying it, this is the farthest that I've ever studied the book of Ecclesiastes. And actually, it's become one of my favorite books. Actually, it does. Because it's challenging. And and, and studying it thus far, I have to conclude that it's not the book of Ecclesiastes that's that's depressing. Hang with me. You know what's depressing? Is living under the sun. That's what's depressing and demoralizing. And all Solomon is doing is putting it into words. I thank God that we have people that can put things into words, that can put them in lyrics to songs, that can sing the blues, that can sing the human story, because otherwise most of us just walk around and exist in it and become lonelier and more depressed and more demoralized. What's demoralizing is living on this planet. What's demoralizing is living under the sun. And Solomon is actually doing us a tremendous favor by putting it into words. By taking our thoughts, thoughts that you and I have every day, thoughts that could be either damaging or uplifting, depending on how we look at what is happening. And at least we had someone who was able to put those thoughts into words for us. So when we read the book, we're reading our song. He's singing our song. It's not the book that's depressing. There are things that are written, our lives, our natures, our motives, the ruination that this planet really is, the ruination that my nature, my very nature, has brought upon living under the sun. 
And it has to be said. Solomon will tell us it has to be said in order for us to come to some conclusions, to get to the principle of the book, to get to what it really illustrates. It has to be said. It needs to be told, and it needs to be told plainly. Under the sun needs to be brought to the light, taken out from under the sun and brought to the light and judged for what it really is. So the conclusion begins with a familiar theme. If you want to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, that's where we'll be. It's a familiar theme. He says, remember your creator in the days of your what? In the days of your youth. What is Solomon always looking for? What does he miss the most? He misses the days of his youth because he's looking back on a life and he's looking back with regret. He's looking back with with not recognizing, not knowing, not understanding. And he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years draw near when you say what? I have no pleasure in them. None. So it's a familiar theme. What would be the theme for those of us who lack poetic giftedness? Getting old stinks. It really does, he says. Getting old really stinks. I have no pleasure. It, and, and the Kohelet puts it so well. See, getting old stinks or... The days are here that I have no pleasure in. That's not too bad. That's not too bad. Not, not, a, not a bad way to look at it. Okay. But again, not depressing, not morose, just telling the truth. The longer we live under the sun, the worse it gets. We have no pleasure in these. And then he does what he does so well. He begins to put words together. Words together that that evoke an image. That's what poets do to evoke an image. He says, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return with rain. In the day when the guards of the house tremble and the strong men are what? The strong men are bent and the women who grind cease working because they are few and those who look through windows see dimly. Is it a poetic way to describe the aging process? A poetic way to describe what's happening to each and every one of us? I know, I know. People of a certain age, people under a certain age right now are looking at me going, man, you're crazy. You're still the Mountain Dew generation. You're still making motorcycles do what they should not do. You're still, you know, you're out there living. You're out there, you know. When I was in high school, I thought I was going to live forever. You'd read this poem to me. Where's my Mountain Dew? But the way that he puts it, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, the days when the guards of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the women who cease working because they are few. As we get older, our friends begin to die. And as they go, we begin to contemplate. We begin to understand why I'm the only one left. I'm the only one working. According to the National Eye Institute, 22 million Americans age 40 or older will get cataracts. You know the number one cause of cataracts? Aging. If we live to be 80, if we live to be 80, over half of us will get them. Cataracts are very, you know, scientific. So that's what's the problem. You know, your sight is becoming dim because you're getting a cataract. No. Those who look through the windows see dimly. 
I'm not sure what the, I, you know, I'm not sure how to, how, how to look at this because I, I understand this. I, I, I feel it. And I, I feel it every day. I feel it in my joints. I feel it in my bones. I feel it in my eyes. My eyes have been bad since I was nine years old. Guess what? When they've been bad since they're nine years old, they get even worse. I looking through the windows dimly. My windows are right here. I still look through them dimly ever since I was nine. So I understand what he's saying, but there's something about this poetry. Does it make you want to run out and age? But, you know, it's better than just saying, oh, man, getting old really stinks, man. But this is what he's saying. When the doors in the street are shut, the sound of the grinding is low. One rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. When the doors in the streets are shut, the sound of the grinding is low. Why is it low? Can't hear anymore. Your hearing's going, right? Do you know that, that, that hearing loss due to aging is not just volume? We, we think that, okay, well, to, to be able to cure it, just crank it up, right? You know? That's, that's what, what hearing aids do. It's crank up the volume. But actually, do you understand that the tiny little bones in your ear that vibrate and then your brain actually distinguishes between those sounds, they begin to calcify. So it isn't so much volume that you can't hear. It's that what happens to us is that we begin to lose distinction between sounds. So the ambient noise begins to drown out what you're trying to listen for. And it may not be volume at all, but it happens to all of us. Every one of us. So the sound of the grinding comes low. And so the distinction of sounds, what happens, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, a particular sound will bust through that didn't used to bust through before because the bones used to help the brain be able to distinguish between it. And so that's why you could be laying there and all of a sudden just the sound of a bird and somebody who is losing or, or their hearing is degenerating will all of a sudden bolt upright because it hits them and it hits them hard. I had a church member tell me once in tears saying that he could no longer attend church because what would happen is, is the ambient noise, he wouldn't be able to hear, and then all of a sudden a child or somebody would speak at a particular volume and it would hit him and it would jar him and he just couldn't do it anymore. And crying, he said goodbye to church. So this is a slow, incessant march, isn't it? You just picture this march, and it becomes less deliberate, and the posture becomes less upright, and the sun becomes darker, and the sound becomes distant. One is, one is afraid of the heights and the terrors are in the road. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because all must go to their eternal home and the mourners will go about the streets. I used to say that I learned to swim just so I could get to the ladder before I drowned to get back up on the diving board. That's the only reason I learned to swim. I love diving boards. Our public pool had two. Remember the standard size diving board? Four feet, okay? And then the high dive, high dive. Twelve feet, right? <clears throat> Might as well have been 12 stories is what it looked like to me. 
when you're about nine years old. But from nine till 18, that's all I did. I'd pay my quarter at the public pool and I would be there when it opened at noon and before mom came to get me at six and I would do nothing but jump and dive and flip. I could do a one and a half. That was my, my limit. Off high dive and low dive, alternating. I love the diving board. Fast forward to 41 years old. Swimming in a pool, and that pool had a rock that, that was no higher than the public pool's high dive. It was no higher than that. And I climbed up it no problem, and I'm going to dive off this thing, and I get to the edge, and what I couldn't get out of my head anymore was the image of me slipping as trying to jump out beyond the rocks and dying in front of my wife and son who are sitting right there. I couldn't get the image out of my head. What happened? I got old. And I got afraid of the height. All 12 feet of it. Took me 45 minutes just to jump off. And I got a picture of it. It's not pretty. No, I didn't stick the landing. Probably made a splash that sent a wave across the pool and little kids might have drowned. And I used to look and say, I do a one and a half off that thing. Not even think about it. What happened? I'm afraid of the heights now. I got old. I got old. Grasshoppers. You ever in springtime came to a, you know, to a place, a field that has grass about up to your knees and the grasshopper eggs just hatched and you start walking through them and they all go bing, 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 bing. Jumpy, 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 right? You come across the grasshopper and he's doing this. Something's up. And where is it all headed? Where is it all headed? Mourners come out and go about the streets. People begin to go to their eternal home. What is Solomon saying? Where is it going now? Before the silver cord is snapped, the golden bowl is broken, the pitcher is broken at the fountain, the wheel broken at the cistern. Snapped. Broken. Broken. Something now disconnects and ceases. What is he describing now? Death. Now when we began this series, when you read chapter 1 and chapter 2, is it any surprise that he ends it this way? Because this is where he's been headed all along, isn't it? This is where he's been going. No joy under the sun, especially if you know where you're going. There were some high moments. There were some big moments. There were some beautiful moments. But guess what? Just like the animals, we're all headed to the same place. Back in chapter 4, he said we die the same death as animals. Then he says, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the breath returns to God who gave it. And we just hit the one verse in Ecclesiastes that almost every Adventist knows. Don't we? Don't Adventists know this verse? And why do we know this verse? It's okay, Seventh-day Adventists. Don't be ashamed of what? Don't be ashamed of the truth. It's the truth, right? Why do we know this verse? Because it's our proof text for what? 
for our, what happens when we die, for our di- doctrine of the conditional immortality of the soul, the way a theologian would put it. I'm not a theologian, but I hang around him. I pick up a little of the lingo. We don't believe in the immortal soul, do we? We believe that the creator of the universe, the creator of the universe got down on his hands and knees and, and formed in the dust of the ground the human body, and then he breathed into it the spirit, his spirit, the breath of life. And those two that come together become an eternal what? Not eternal, but become a living soul. So that when we die, what happens? We die. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There is life, and there is what? And there is death. And as he was breathing into that creature, the breath of life, as he was intimately, intimately creating this creature. Remember, everything else he speaks into existence. Everything else, he could have been anywhere. He could have been sitting on a throne so far away. Didn't matter. All he had to do was speak the word. And he hung this very planet in its existence and the sun to warm it and everything else. But when it came time to create you and me, he gets off that throne. He gets down on his hands and knees and he personally forms you with his hands and then breathes into you the breath of life. Actually, I believe he places his lips on the lips of that creature and breathes into them breath of life. No distance between an absolute intimacy between creature and creator. This is life. And when we die, the body returns to the dust which he lovingly formed to create you and me. And the breath which belonged to him all along goes back to where? goes back to him. Don't be ashamed of the truth. There is something, however, even to the truth under the sun. Listen to what he says even about the truth, about the beauty of of life and death. The beauty of life, the tragedy of death. What does he say about even truth, about even right doctrine? Vanity, vanities. All is what? All is vanity. The truth is vanity? What the? Why are we here? He's saying, here's the problem with under the sun, is that even the truth, even God's own truth, even his word, even his loving act, even you and I being able to tell the world about his loving act, it's all vanity. Why? Why? Because what ruined this uh, living under the sun, what ruined that very creation is that I can take the truth and make it selfish. I can take the truth and make it all about, you know what? I know something you don't know about life and death. And if you don't agree with me, you're just ignorant. If you don't agree with me, you must not read your Bible. It's as plain as the nose on your face. So that Solomon says that even the truth is what? Under the sun. It's not just that we go from the cradle to the grave. It's not just that. It's what happens along the way. 
It's what happens to believer and unbeliever. It doesn't matter. It's what he's saying. Believer and unbeliever. There will be those who choose life and there will be those who choose death. By the way, they were created that way. But yet those who choose life can actually make life so selfish that they would take God's truth and use it selfishly. You with me? Do you see what he's saying? That even the truth becomes vanity when it's done with the wrong motive. And believe me, I've had my share, I have had my share of preaching the state of the dead, as we call it, one of the five S's, with the wrong motive. Our natures can turn even that which is good into vanity because the motive then covers up the actual good act and we end up committing the sin of being good. Only, only humanity could take being good and make it a sin. And here's what the teacher is telling us. This is why living under the sun is vanity. It's a vexation. It's a chasing after the wind. By the way, what if, what if the doctrine isn't about the immortality of the soul or the mortality of the soul? What if it isn't a debate about truth versus error? What if it's really about the mercy of God? And what if the, the Kohelet put this here for a reason in this chapter? He just gave us this long, beautiful, poetic description of death. And then he takes the truth. He takes the truth back here of what death really is. And that death is death. And that when you die, what if, what if, it's not a debate of truth versus error. What if it's truly all about the mercy of God? Maybe the way that we should have been teaching this and preaching this for all these years, instead of I'm right, you're wrong. And if you want to be right, you're going to have to think like me. What if we were telling them about the mercy of God? that death becomes a merciful end and that death is the only merciful end there is to living under the sun. And that those who choose to die, he makes an eternal rest in which they know nothing anymore. No pain. Yes, it's true. No joy, no nothing else. But no pain. Rest. That even those who choose death who can look him in the eye and say, you know, I just, I just choose death. God says, I created you that way because I love you. Then he lays them in for a permanent sleep. Doesn't torture them forever. Doesn't temporarily take those for those who live. He doesn't temporarily take them to a place to where they can observe torture forever. He lays them to sleep. What if it was all about God's mercy? And it has to be. Because I can't purify my motive. That's what Solomon is saying. You can't purify your motive. Wisdom does not trump motive. Wisdom does not trump nature. Willpower does not trump nature. And by the way now, truth does not trump nature. We can be as true and pure as we want to be. 
But if we don't remove the lousy motive for which we have it, then we are going to do nothing but cause ruination for people. That's why Solomon says living under the sun, not even truth cuts it. That we can use truth for our own gain, that we can use it to be better than someone else, nothing trumps nature. Not even the purest of doctrine trumps nature. This is why living under the sun is such a vanity and chasing after wind and a vexation. This is what he says about teaching. The teacher sought to find pleasing words. He wrote, the, he wrote the words of truth plainly. But, but I, what I love about that is that he sought to find pleasing words. He didn't just stand up like I would have because I've got no, no uh, poetic talent. He just didn't stand up and just say, guess what, guess what? You're born, you get old, you die. And everything in between, it just stinks. I sought to find pleasing words. Remember what we said before, Solomon wanted to make a difference in the world. He asked God for wisdom because he wanted to be the type of king that would make a difference. And probably all the things that he did as king doesn't even, pay, doesn't even begin, begin to compare the good that he did in writing the words for us. I sought to find pleasing words. I taught the words of truth plainly. The sayings of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings what are given by one shepherd. Of anything beyond these, my child, what? Beware of making many books. There is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. What does he say about the truth? What is the truth? It's like a goad and a firmly fixed nail. For some shepherds, it wasn't enough to have a goad. A goad was a rod that he would use to prod the sheep around. They would put nails in the end of it. That would really prod the sheep. That's what the truth is, he says. That's what the truth is. It's goads. Okay, and you say, well, he gives us permission to use these goats. He says, beyond any of these, my child, beware. It can actually be translated this way. New Living Translation says, but my child, let me give you some further advice. Furthermore, he says, not beyond the truth. It's okay if you goad them with the truth. That's all right. That's not what he's saying. Furthermore, he says, beware. A further word against them, my son, be warned. The making of many books is without limit and much study is a wearing of flesh. What we do with the truth is that we write books and books and books. We try to make better goads. We try to make better nails. But in the end, the Kohelet says it's still a goad. It's still a nail. It didn't work on you, by the way. It's not going to work with anybody else. Tell me, did the goad work on you? How many here came to Christ because they were told that they were wrong? None of us did. And if you still have that relationship with God, you need to understand that He loves you. That He loves you exactly as you are. And that His burden is light. And that His yoke is easy. And he is our shepherd, but he doesn't mention anything about a goad. It doesn't work on humanity. 1964, the Surgeon General put a warning on every pack of cigarettes. Did it work? No. 
Every generation seems to smoke what? More. Solomon understands this. Solomon sees it. Solomon sees it in the people. He recognizes it in his own nature. He said, it didn't work on me. It doesn't work on anybody else. Remember what he taught us about oppression? Remember? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are practiced under the sun. Look, the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, but with no one to comfort them. We take the truth and we use it to oppress. And we may think it's okay because it's the truth. But the Kohelet warns us today, the teacher warns us today, even the truth under the sun is a vanity, is a vexation. Everything that has been done, the truth is even a vanity. We can come up with better goads and better nails, but in the end they're goads and they're nails and they don't work on humans who have free will. So even under the sun, we're self-centered and cruel by nature. The truth in our hands are corrupted by our motives. Even wisdom, wisdom from God is a vexation. The wisest man said, my, my wisdom has become a vexation. Because I said, when he, when he came to the throne, he goes, I ended up doing just what had been done before. And I thought my wisdom would make a difference. And it didn't. And in case you missed it, that's the way the world views the church today. Maybe not this church, maybe not this particular congregation, but the Christian church. How good a reputation does it have in our nation? Not very good, huh? There was going to be a debate a few years ago between Prime, uh, former Prime Minister Tony Blair of Britain and Christopher Hitchens, who is a famous uh, atheist if you will, and they were going to debate, and they were going to do it in Toronto, and the sponsors decided before that they were going to uh, put the resources into a poll, and they were going to poll, I think it was 18 countries. Actually, on the, on the list that they put out, I counted 14, but, oh, 14 nations, 18,000 people in each. They asked them just one question, is religion a force for good? One question, is religion a force for good? Only six said yes. Out of those 14, only six said yes. With the United States at number four, 65%. The other nations, Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, and India. Now, first of all, I'm not so sure that I want to be in that group. That Saudi Arabia was the highest, said 92% said religion is a force for good. And considering what religion has done to their laws, particularly how they treat women, I'm not sure I want to be in that group. But anyway, the United States said 65%. What was interesting, though, was that the nations that had the most experience with Christianity, in other words, they were Christians the longest, Eastern, Western European nations, were the lowest of scores, 14, 12, 11, 9%. Did you know our own church, Mark and, and Norma can tell you in England, Almost doesn't exist. 
Our own church has no native, nearly no native uh, people from Great Britain. When you go to the church, the church is basically made up of islanders, colonials, people who, who uh, still live under colonial rule and they come to, to, to England to live. Those are the people that make up the church there. It's something like less than 1%. As far as the population of the Seventh-day Adventist church, 1.75% in Western Europe. You fight two world wars on a continent in the 20th century, and then you fight for nearly 1,500 years, and all of them holy wars, and the people come to a conclusion about Christianity. Philip Yancey in his book, Vanishing Grace, says, Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth, wrote John in the preface to his gospel. The church has worked tirelessly on the truth part of the formula. Witness the church councils, creeds, volumes of theology, denominational splits over minor points of doctrine. I yearn for the church to compete just as hard in conveying what Paul calls the incomparable riches of God's grace. Often it seems we're perceived more as guilt dispensers than grace dispensers. Do we fight as hard for the grace part as we fight for the truth part? And we have to be honest with ourselves. Go to the ABC. Look at all the books. Are they written about grace? Or are they written about truth? Or some form of the truth? Or what somebody says the truth is? I was baptized in 1986. This came out in 1985. From what I understand, it wasn't very welcomed. And by the time I got to the church, the church that I was baptized in had already fought a war over the old hymnal versus the new hymnal. A war. And every day lately, I have to look on Facebook to hear one people talk about one of my friends or one of my spiritual mentors and talk about how they are creating this division in the church. Blood being spilt every day. Over what? Over truth. The teacher has a message for us today. See, I don't think I don't think that the death part and God's mercy part falls in this chapter by accident. What do we do? He says, you know what? The end of the matter has all been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of everyone. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. I told you this before. The church will change when we change. Because we are the church. There are too many of us, including me, that thought that truth would save us. I used to think that truth saved me. Right interpretation, right knowledge, right preaching, right teaching, that would save me. That proved that I was good with God. Solomon says that's a vanity in chasing after wind. Here the man laid everything bare for 11 chapters told the world everything that he was guilty of, confessed and bared his soul to everybody, did all that, and in the end, 
even with all those deeds, all those horrible deeds piled up against him. The wives, the concubines, the alcohol, the partying, the excess, the riches, the greed, the oppression that he did on millions and millions of slaves. He lays that and he feels confident enough, feels confident enough that in the end he will bring them to God. Why? Because I think he knows something about God that we don't. And he knows he could bring it to him. And he's going to bring every deed into judgment. And Solomon confidently, boldly lays that confession at his feet. Because if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and true will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the end, anything, anything beyond the confession to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and believing, believing, that not only does he forgive us, that we can now walk around with his righteousness is the only answer to living under the sun. And a people full of grace will become a church full of grace. That's all I got. That's all I know how to do. I'm just a preacher. But I do know this. That when I laid it at his feet, he freed me. That when I confessed it to him, he freed me. And I have lived free ever since the day that I did it. And if Ecclesiastes teaches you nothing, nothing, today you need to lay that burden down. Today, you need to take anything that you've substituted except for the perfect substitutionary atonement of Christ and his righteousness for you. Truth, doctrine, preaching, teaching, witnessing, evangelism. If you think that any of those things, any of those things are any more than vanity than what the teacher says is, you've got to lay that burden down today and not walk out this door with it. I want you to be free. Pastor Walt wants you to be free. God wants us to be free. Guess what happens to us? Guess what happens to the church when we do? Ministry of Healing, page 470, Ellen White tells us, No other influence that can surround the human soul has such power as the influence of an unselfish life. The strongest argument in favor of the gospel is a loving and lovable Christian. The strongest argument in favor of the gospel is a loving and lovable Christian. Jesus said, love each other as I have loved you. Our problem is, is that we try to love each other without realizing how much he loves us. I really believe that Solomon realized it. And that's why he could give it all to God. Notice what he says, that it will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. He says, even my good deeds have to be judged because under the sun, even there of vexation and a vanity, there is no good under the sun. Remember, only humans could take being good and make it a sin. It isn't whether the deed was good or evil, what, how it will be judged. It's how it will be judged. 
And Jesus has decided to take all of our bad deeds and our good deeds and judge them. And he takes them to the cross and condemns them and he leaves them there. And then gives you and me his perfect righteousness. Ecclesiastes is the gospel. Solomon Solomon took that whole horrible selfish life and said, you know what? I got nowhere else to go. I'm going to God. Fear God. Revere God. Keep his commandments. And what are his commandments? Love him and love each other. And then let him judge. By the way, he already has. It happened on that cross. He judged my deeds, good or evil, and then gave me his gift of his righteousness. If you take nothing away from Ecclesiastes, if you take absolutely nothing away from this study, you have to take away what the teacher concluded. All we got is God. And he loves us enough to save us, to forgive us, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's all we take away from this book. By the way, it's the only thing that can make under the sun bearable. It's the only thing that can make you and I loving and lovable. It's the only way that world is going to hear. if, If the truth has been bouncing off people's ears and they're just not listening, guess what? It's because we haven't been loving. It's because we haven't been lovable. And the polls and everything are telling us that. So all I can do today before we send you out to go and preach the three angels' message is to tell you that indeed you are loved. And if you don't know that, if you don't realize it, don't leave here today without laying it at his feet. Come talk to us. Don't leave here with that burden one second longer. He loves you as you are. He'll forgive you as you are. And he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The words of the preacher. The words of the teacher. Thank you all for bearing with us. We didn't understand that we could turn this into three months, right? Next we'll be doing 21... uh, 21... Uh, series on the book of Jude, right? (laughs) One sermon per verse. Don't leave here. Don't leave today without knowing it. Come talk to Pastor Walt. Come talk to me. Come talk to one of the lay pastors. Tell somebody. Tell somebody you want to leave it at his feet. Help, Help us help you do that. This is Grace Point's version of an altar call. Another old tradition along with uh, these wonderful old traditions that hold mystery that we would like to march you through. Thank you all for sticking with us. Take Take his love with you. It's the only thing that will make a difference under the sun. Let's pray. Father, Thank you so much, Lord, for bringing us today to this, to this day. Thank you for Solomon bringing us 
to this point. Father, I know there are people out there that just need to unburden their hearts to you. And I just ask that they do that with you today, that, that, that they know the love that you have for them. They know what you've done for them. And that today is the day. I thank you for the love and the grace and the wonder that you give us. I thank you for the church that you give us to grow up in. Just ask that we become more like you. Bless everybody now as we go on to study. Bless everybody as we continue on in the Sabbath. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. And we thank you for the love and the grace that will help us live that truth and know that truth and own it that we would be able to take it to a dying world. We ask this in the name of Jesus. And we give him the praise today for certainly he is the only one that deserves it. In his name, amen.